make people have conversations around EDI, but if they don't actually know how to talk about it and have those conversations, then it could be pretty destructive. My name is Alana Ogata, and I'm a new assistant professor in the Department of Chemical and Physical Sciences and the Department of Chemistry here at University of Toronto. So part of what I want my group to learn about and get comfortable with is having the conversations with other people. All of my students will be a leader in some capacity. And if you're going to be a leader, you have to know how to educate yourself and then talk with others about these topics. Research Reinvigorated. Hello and welcome to View to the U, an eye on UTM research. I'm Carla DeMarco at U of T Mississauga. View to the U is a monthly podcast that features UTM researchers from a range of disciplines who will illuminate some of the inner workings of the science labs and enlighten the social sciences and humanities hubs at UTM. On this episode of View to the U, my guest is Professor Alana Ogata from UTM's Department of Chemical and Physical Sciences. For this season called Without Further Ado, I will introduce you to some of the new people from UTM's vibrant and ever-growing research community. Over the course of today's interview, Alana talks about her bioanalytical chemistry research that measures proteins, which are at the root of all biological functions and processes, and has relevance for disease diagnostics and treatment. Alana is also particularly interested in investigating biomarkers in relation to women's health. But also, as the opening quote illustrates, Alana is committed to mentorship and animating equity, diversity, and inclusion in academia by discussing and fostering these considerations with her students and trainees. Alana Ogata is an assistant professor of analytical chemistry in the Department of Chemical and Physical Sciences at U of T Mississauga, and also has a graduate appointment in the Department of Chemistry at the University of Toronto. Alana completed her bachelor's degree in chemistry at William & Mary before going on to earn her PhD in chemistry at the University of California, Irvine. She also has held postdoctoral research fellowships at Harvard Medical School and in Brigham and Women's Hospital in the U.S. Alana joined the faculty at UTM in July 2021. My group is really interested in measuring proteins and especially their relevance to diseases. And so proteins are really interesting because they're at the center of almost every important process in the human body. But it's really important to quantify them or measure their exact number, whether it's in cells or in our blood or in other fluids to understand their role. So I am a bioanalytical lab and we are aiming to develop new technologies that can quantify proteins, and we're using bio-inspired nanomaterials, which just a fancy word for really, really small materials that can mimic natural things. And our goal is to use these technologies to solve key challenges in disease diagnostics. And I'm especially passionate about revolutionizing women's health care and working towards personalized medicine in that area. That's awesome. You did touch on this already. So you do very much center on protein analysis and the role that proteins play 
in various biological functions and processes. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that, maybe just provide a couple of examples of the kinds of perhaps proteins you're looking at, specifically what functions they might be tied to, but also to get a better sense of your lab, what kinds of equipment that you're using to carry out your research and your studies and like maybe what your lab looks like. Sure. For the protein question, I think cancer is always sort of a well-understood process where there is, you know, the formation of these tumor and cancerous cells in the body, and that causes a lot of issues to the organ or to the entire system. But those cells from the tumor secrete proteins themselves. And so that is a type of protein biomarker is what we call it, where once they're secreted into the blood, if you were able to detect that, you could then say, okay, there is the presence of this tumor somewhere in the body. And so there's a lot of proteins like that that come into the system because of some disease status. And if you can find them, you can diagnose the disease. Partly that's what we're interested in. So there's a lot of gynecological diseases that I would like to identify these protein markers for in the blood. And then my second interest is enzymes. So they're another type of protein that drive reactions. So they catalyze or help reactions go in the body. And so if they're dysregulated, so the enzyme is working too much or too little, that can also lead to diseases. So it would be helpful to then measure essentially the activity of that enzyme and see if it is in fact behaving the way it's supposed to. And again, using it as a marker for disease or something that's going wrong inside the body. But can I just ask though too, in the case of the enzymes, so again, like those could be tied to any sort of either a process or like if you're measuring enzymes, as you mentioned, looking for markers that I know you stated cancer, but could it also be then tied to the way your body metabolizes things or? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, to give an example completely separate from cancer, there's an enzyme in our bodies that help form bone. And so that enzyme turns over a substrate, turns it into a product, and that product is what helps our bones form. So when that enzyme is not behaving correctly, then you have a bone disease. And it's a very rare disease. And then you end up having these inefficient bone structures that cause a lot of problems. So I think that's an example too, where it's completely different from cancer. But again, the disease comes about because the enzyme is not catalyzing the reaction as it should be. Okay, thank you. And so, yeah, getting back to your lab, I know you're still getting your lab set up because you are very (laughs) new to campus, but what kinds of equipment do you have in your lab and how do you carry out your research? Well, right now in the lab, I think our biggest piece of equipment is a fluorescence microscope. So some of the assays that we are going to be developing to measure proteins are based on fluorescence experiments. And so we have that microscope. We do some electrochemistry to measure proteins, and that requires something called a potentiostat, but it's actually quite simple and cute. It's only about as big as a laptop. They've learned to make these things very small and very efficient, but you can do a lot of measurements with that. And then Everything else, we're a very simple lab. We do a lot of our chemistry in water, which means we don't need very bulky glove boxes or fume hoods and things like that. But the last piece of equipment that we're using, and this is a shared facility at University of Toronto, is something called the cryotransmission electron microscope. So that is a very fancy microscope that we are using to look at our different nanomaterials. I have one student getting trained on that right now. Okay. And you said that was one of the shared facilities, but it's not at UTM, it's at U of T? Yes. So it's it's located downtown. 
Okay. It's just, I know that we've got core facilities that includes microscopy, but I wasn't Mm. sure if that's part of what you are using for your work. Yes, we are using, there is the core facilities here at UTM and they have a scanning electron microscope and an x-ray diffraction instrument. And we are using those as well from day to day. So a lot of my lab uses core facility instrumentation. We have a few in-house. And you did touch on the implications for improvements to healthcare, but if you wanted to expand on that a little bit, I am very curious because you mentioned about women's health. And so if you could maybe talk a little bit about your goals related to healthcare. In general, I have more of a short-term goal and then a very pie-in-the-sky goal. In diagnostics, especially for cancer in general, it is better to be able to detect and diagnose the disease as early as possible. And again, this is sort of the easiest to understand is if you can stop the tumor before it's grown too big and started being invasive into other parts of the body, then it's much easier to treat. And detecting these proteins in blood, and I might start saying liquid biopsy throughout the podcast now. So that's also (laughs) known as a liquid biopsy. Instead of going in and actually taking a biopsy, you take a blood sample and you try and find some sort of biomarker in there. That is a very promising tool for these early diagnoses. And then of course, because it's non-invasive, it's much easier to do more frequently, which is also a good strategy for catching things earlier. So there's a lot of different avenues we can go into for different disease areas. But in terms of the women's healthcare, so of course, I'm also very interested in being able to develop early diagnostics for certain gynecological diseases. Endometriosis is one I'm interested in the short term. It's kind of the classic case of a disease that is very limiting to women. If they have it, lots of pain could cause infertility, but it's very hard to diagnose. One, because the symptoms look like menstrual pain and are often misdiagnosed that way. And if you want to confirm diagnosis, you have to do it surgically and be opened up and see if there's actually physical evidence of endometriosis. And so just a classic disease that does not get diagnosed early, if at all. And so I want to try and look at some different blood protein biomarkers and see if we can come up with a diagnostic in that area. But beyond that, and now this is probably 10, 20, 30 year goal. I think another really huge problem in women's healthcare is we just don't have the data or the knowledge on what's going on in our reproductive system. Even if we had the tool to then measure a protein that was related to our gynecological health, it might not mean anything because each person is different and the proteins levels fluctuate so much. So you have one data point, but you don't actually know if it's high or low because it's different for each person and it changes over time. So I want to be able to develop these sensors too that can collect temporal data, so data over time, so that maybe as early as young adolescent women, you can start collecting data. And over time, you have this nice set of data that tells you how these levels fluctuate. And then if there's a drastic change or you have that one data point now for a diagnostic, it actually means something in the context of your personal history. So that's my idea of revolutionizing women's healthcare. And you can apply that to other diseases too. I have a special passion for women's healthcare, but yeah, I think I just sort of envision having this real time based sensors, the pap smear on a stick test that allows us to get so much quantitative data that we don't have. And then we don't have to guess, or we don't have to talk about our symptoms 
or just say, yeah, that happens every month and start working towards personalized medicine. You know, that is so awesome because, well, first of all, I think that there's so many people who know someone who has endometriosis. There's just, Mm. it's such a widespread thing that I think that we don't realize how much it affects people. But also I heard this researcher a few months ago on Fresh Air, which is another podcast. She herself had endometriosis and she wrote like a whole book about her history with the disease. But as you say, it went for years without it being diagnosed. Mm -hmm. And they just said, you've just got bad period cramps, suffered Mm -hmm. for years and years and had all sorts of fertility problems. So I just think it is way more common than what we realize it to be. Right. I would love to look into blood-based protein biomarkers for something like that and try and come up with a diagnostic method. Yeah. And yeah, I can tell you're very passionate about your work. And I just, I'm then so curious how you ended up getting into this field of research in the first place. My whole research program, it's sort of a mix of materials chemistry, analytical chemistry, and clinical. So many things to say. I guess I started off in high school not liking chemistry at all. And it wasn't because of my teacher. I just really, I didn't understand it. So I got into the College of William and Mary and it's a liberal arts school. So I didn't have to choose a major going in. And I think that was really key for me because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And then I started taking chemistry courses that had these lab components. So half of it was in a lecture hall, half of it was hands-on in a laboratory doing experiments. And that started turning me said, okay, now things are starting to make sense. Now I'm actually using them in a lab. And by the end of it, you also had to go to seminars. So they required undergraduate students to go to these weekly seminars. And there were either professors from other schools giving a talk on their research, or one day it was a professor from the College of William Mary giving a talk. And this was Professor Kristen Wushulz. And she was talking about looking at dyes with single molecule fluorescence and how that tied into desensitized solar cells for solar energy, which I was super into at the time, solar energy and alternative energy sources. But I didn't know research existed. So this is the first time I had learned that people have a profession of research and that it was a very big presence at the College of William and Mary. And I mean, I was extremely intimidated. So I, a friend was sitting next to me and said, we should go talk to her about undergraduate research which I also didn't know what that meant, but I tend to have a lot of trust in people. So we talked to her and she took us in and that was it. She's been the most influential mentor I've had. And she's the only female mentor I've had. And I don't know what that means. I, you know, I was very young at the time and very moldable, but she told me about graduate school, which I also didn't know about. So she's really the reason I went to graduate school and the rest is history from there. So I wasn't working on disease diagnostics in her lab, but when I got to UC Irvine, which is where I did my PhD, I met Reg Penner, who was my advisor there, and he did a lot of point of care work for disease diagnostics. So that's how that interest started. I chose my PhD with him. I guess after that, so I still didn't know what I wanted to do. Somehow at every phase in my life, I don't really know what I want to do, but I know what I'm excited about. So I just go 100% of direction. I think I wanted to be a startup entrepreneur. And then I wanted to go into industry. And then I thought about mint jobs. And it wasn't until the very end that I had decided, in fact, I love teaching and mentoring and a faculty position was the best option for me. But Reg was an amazing mentor, extremely supportive. I had Joe Patterson for a postdoc, again, really solidified that I wanted to be a faculty mentor because he was starting his group. And he was doing the cryo TEM material side of things. So that's how that's been worked into my program. And then I did my last postdoc with David Walt at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. 
And same thing. I mean, just amazing mentorship. So all along the way, I've had really supportive, influential mentors that I think have catalyzed me to this point. And I've taken a little bit of research from each of them. And in fact, it's almost one third each into my research program. So I'm very much a mixture of all of those into this really cool interdisciplinary team. And yeah, I mean, I've just had a wonderful time going through the academic system. And I know that's not always true, but my mentors, I have a lot to thank. And now I'm trying to return the favor back into the system and mentor graduate students and undergraduate students and all that good stuff. That's fantastic. I love that sometimes you talk to people and it's like they knew from the get-go they wanted to be doing something in science, but you're touching on something that I remember someone else saying just that, you know, they grew up, no one in their family was an academic mm-hmm. and like they didn't even know what a professor really did. I find those stories really interesting that you didn't really set out on this path, but as you say, it was some of the influence of your mentors and one thing led to another. And I just mm-hmm. really like that. Mm-hmm. The unexpected. Very unexpected. Um, I think I've always been really open-minded and somehow fearless, which has interestingly, it changes the higher and higher I get into my career, but I've always just been excited about what I'm doing. And if I change my mind, then I just pivot into a different direction. Yeah. And so then I know also that you are pretty new to UTM. I think you started here during the pandemic, if I'm not mistaken. I got here in July. And I find this so fascinating, people starting during the pandemic when you haven't even met some of your colleagues probably in person, but we aren't yet fully back to full operations at UTM. And so I'm just wondering, what are you most looking forward to when regular life resumes on the campus? Definitely excited to have more of the faculty around. And so I got here in July 2021, I think right after lockdown ended for Canada. But for the most part, this semester too, I think people were very much encouraged to stay home. And if you were teaching virtually, then there was no reason to come in. But yeah, it's hard anyways to come in and meet people. But without many people around, it's even harder. So I'm excited just to have that energy back. I think a lot of people are. And it's not to say that people haven't been supportive. The support here at UTM is amazing and has been a really big factor in me getting started in the middle of a pandemic. And I would also say the students coming back, but I was quite fortunate that I was assigned a laboratory course. So that was in person this semester. And I love interacting with the students face to face. So I'm excited to have more of that. But Luckily, it's something I already had this semester. But yeah, it's just excited to have people around again. Yeah, for sure. I think, yeah, a lot of us are feeling that way. And this is totally diverging from the script, but I, <laughs> I saw one of your Twitter posts that you just, I think, did recently. But I thought it was so fantastic because you mentioned about working with the students. But I know you're very much focused on also the equity, diversity, and inclusion Mm. piece. And I really liked that you said that your students, they actually have to bring an EDI or equity, diversity, and inclusion related article Mm -hmm. to your sort of working group or class once a week so that you can discuss it, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. But I just, I thought this was so fantastic. It's a, you know, presents this learning experience for the student, but then you can share it with the class and you get to talk Mm -hmm. about it. And then you're aware of some of these other articles and Mm -hmm. topics. Oh, that's great. I think I posted that a couple of days ago, but it's right. So we have what I've incorporated into our weekly group meetings is at least once a semester, a student has to dedicate their group meeting to the equivalent of a journal club for any other scientific article, but right, it's EDI related. And we did a test run this semester. This is the first time 
So they all three presented in, in one group meeting and it was amazing. First of all, I learned so much, you know, there's so much literature out there on EDI. You can have plenty of evidence-based conversations, but it was really good because you can make people have conversations around EDI, but if they don't actually know how to talk about it and have those conversations, then it could be pretty destructive. So part of what I want my group to learn about and get comfortable with is having the conversations with other people. But they did a great job. They had really interesting articles to present about. We could have talked for a long time after the group meeting. So I'm really excited for future EDI-focused meetings. But I'm trying to take a very proactive approach because I've done throughout my career I guess I would say the more passive optional approach, you know, it's encouraged that you present an article on EDI. And I think for many reasons, it really doesn't end up happening. Yeah. So I'm just, nope, we, (laughs) this is a requirement. You know, I think all of my students will be a leader in some capacity. And if you're going to be a leader, you have to know how to educate yourself and then talk with others about these topics. We'll see how it goes. It's all very much a trial run this year. But it sounds like it's off to a good start. And also, I think it's so important even to just keep it moving because Mm. as we all know, even terminology changes and I don't know, different things come Mm. to light. And I I think all of that is so important to keep the conversation going with the different journal articles and everything. You're right. You can fall behind on terminology and up-to-date practices. Yeah, absolutely. For others who are just beginning their own paths at UTM, and so that includes students, faculty, staff, et cetera. Do you have any strategies or words of advice when it comes to embarking on a new adventure? My advice would be to get to know the people around you. And because this is a strategy that I've done at every stage or new chapter, and it's a little bit harder now with COVID, although it might also be easier because you can just email someone and schedule a Zoom. But yeah, I really like to get to know either my colleagues or the staff or the person across the hall. I think those connections can open up a lot of opportunities that you didn't know about. And to me, that's the biggest asset you can have is just knowing what's out there and knowing what opportunities there are. So for students, I really encourage them to get to know their professor or get to know their TA, and then maybe even a little bit beyond that, get to know a graduate student in a lab, which I know is very intimidating, but I've found that most people here are very nice. So uh, a very professional email can make a good introduction. And then I'm trying to get to know all the faculty in the department. I'm trying to get to know faculty on the other campuses as well. So I've had a couple of coffee chats, I call them, with people and staff too. I've become quite friendly with the staff. Again, they're amazing. So I have a lot of respect for them. And it just works out great as you start to build that network. It never hurts you to get to know more people. Yeah. I agree. As you say, expanding your network is always a good thing on the point of getting to know people because this new season is meant to be an introduction to our new researchers. Just wondering if there's something that you can tell us about yourself that you would like to share, maybe some little known fact about you, hobbies, interests, or you know anything. Okay. My go-to is that throughout, since undergrad and then throughout my PhD and even my postdoc, my side interest or job was being a fitness instructor. And it's still something that I'm not doing right now, but I would like to pick up again. So fitness and instructing has always been a really big passion for me as well. That's great. Again, you're making me think of Scott Crosser because he used to teach spin classes at the gym. (laughs) I just found that out today and I need to ask him about it because that's amazing. That's exactly what I would do. I think college students are really fun to teach fitness courses to. 
Yeah, Scott Prosser is my formal mentor. They pair you up, new faculty oh. with other faculty just to have some guidance. And I would love to teach fitness classes at the gym at UTM. That'd be really fun. Yeah. Oh, that would be great. I'm a regular gym goer, so I would go to one of your classes. Yeah, I focus more on the dance cardio and the Pilates. That's mm-hmm. great. It really does give you that mental break from, because, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes, of course, when you're doing your research, like all of that can be so intense. And I just think, you know, carving out some time to go to the gym and just do something other than being in front of a screen is so mm-hmm. important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really tough now. I've never spent this much time in front of a screen and it's changed with my new position, but I definitely yeah. feel the effects of sitting and looking at a screen all day. So I love fitness and and getting out my stress that way. And it's also been really beneficial for my communication skills. So Mm. I kind of tell people it's not related to science, but it has in fact strengthened a lot of the skills that I need in science and to be a professor. So I think anything that you do with really good commitment and dedication ends up benefiting other areas in your life. Yeah, 100%. And so then while we have been sidelined, I just wondered if there's any favorite books or podcasts or music or movies or anything that, you know, again, you'd like to share that you just found to be something that you really enjoyed while we were not doing our regular things. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't take up baking or anything like that. Unfortunately, I think during this time, I have ended up working a lot more. That's what I filled my time with, which was not sustainable way back in the pandemic. And I learned that the hard way. So what I'm trying to do is get back into reading books. So I am halfway through a book called Dare to Lead by Brene Brown. And she's wonderful. I forget what she has her PhD in, but she does a lot of work around trust and empathy and leadership, which at first when I heard that, I was like, I don't understand. <laughs> Why? What do you mean doing research on that? But that's been a really good book for understanding how to be a good leader, some case studies and things like that. A big book on my nightstand that I haven't opened, but I really want to this holiday season is Codebreaker. Uh, shoot, I forgot who it's written by, but it's a biography on Jennifer Doudna, who won the Nobel Prize, and she has a lot of work on mRNA. So that is supposed to be a very good read, and I'm excited about that. Otherwise, for movies and shows, my husband and I are getting into this really bad habit of just choosing the shows we like and then re-watching them. We we got through all of Modern Family, and now we're getting through How I Met Your Mother. I think for the most part, it's one of those things your brain can really shut off during them. So it's a bit of our guilty pleasure. Yeah. Well, and like you say, I mean, you're mentioning some shows that are a little bit lighter. Like there was one time and it was like right in the thick of the pandemic and I was watching The Handmaid's Tale (laughs) and I thought, why am I watching this? (laughs) This is so depressing. It's so dark. And it's like we're living through a pandemic. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I don't. I don't go for any of those shows. The other part is I try and to listen to podcasts. I get updates. I'm from the U.S. originally, so I'm trying to stay on the U.S. news and that's never really lighthearted either. So I feel like in terms of my emotional cap, yeah, TV shows are where I have to cut it. It's got to be completely (laughs) fun and nonsensical. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much, Alana. I really appreciate your time and it's so nice just to get a chance to chat with you. Same. This was really great. I would like to thank everyone for listening to today's show. I would especially like to thank my guest, Professor Alana Ogata from the Department of Chemical and Physical Sciences at UTM for being so generous with her time and for telling me about her research at UTM and in the chemistry department at U of T. I look forward to one day taking one of her exercise classes at the Recreation Athletics and Wellness Center at UTM. 
If you are a new researcher at UTM, please get in touch with me. I would love to meet as many people from our campus's research community as possible. This year marks the five-year anniversary for View to View. With roughly 50 tracks, over 21,000 downloads, and everyone's support, it feels very celebratory. I am eternally grateful to the researchers who participated and those who have supported me. You know who you are along the way. A heartfelt thank you to everyone. I would like to take a moment to thank all the researchers and my UTM peeps out there for their support that was extended to me over the past year. They include Ryan Ceruto, Nikki Robichaud, Devin Kruger, Brian Stewart, Rong Wu, Veron Fernandez, Steve Shore, Andrea Olive, Tenley Conway, Sonia Kang, Su Min To, Rhonda McEwen, Alex Gillespie, Doug Vanderland, and Yu Hong Hee. Thank you so much. Also, if you can take the time to rate the podcast in iTunes, it helps others find the show and hear more from our great UTM researchers. Lastly, and as always, thank you to Timmy Terrific for his tracks, tunes, support, and everything. Thank you.